Alrighty, <clears throat> getting the recording fired up. Got my volume cranked way too hot. Uh, check, check, testing. One, two, three. Check, check. I have no idea what we're about to talk about today. Um, check, check. Ah, there we are. Much better in my ears. Uh, let's see what uh, see what Ewan's up to. Rise and shine, podcast listener. Rise and shine. Wake up, Daniel. Wake up and smell the Spin-Off Doctor Spin-Off podcast. How are you doing today? Uh, hello. I, I'm awake, but I don't really know where I, where I am or why I'm here. Yeah, I, I, for this one, we're we're dealing with quite an obscure adaptation. I, I thought it would be a bit unfair to have you trying to dig around to find the relevant media today. So I, I figured I'll just I'll just do it. Um, uh, have me reading to you if that's all right with you. Sure. Yeah. I'll just uh, I'll just react. Well, first of all, have you ever heard of the Half Life franchise? I have. I have. Hmm. That's <laughs> I, I will put you in a, a minority, I suspect, because I, I've never heard of this game series before I started like researching topics for this podcast. Have you ever played any of the games? I actually have not played that many. I think uh, it was one of them was included with the orange box on PS3, which I had. I played it for like a little bit, but I mostly played the much more prominent series Portal. Oh, I didn't come up with any of that in my research. Um, I'll just do an introduction for listeners. So, Half-Life is kind of like a small series of video games produced by the developers, I'll try to pronounce this, uh, Valve, uh, I don't know if I'm doing that right, um, they don't seem to have much of a publishing history, there's some puzzle games and a couple of like online-only multiplayer games, I think that Portal is one of the puzzle games, seems to have been a really small release. It's pretty niche, if I remember correctly. Hmm. So Half-Life itself is kind of like, it's a standard first-person shooter Doom clone. Uh, I I didn't really see anything particularly innovative about it. And there's also been some sequels, but it looks to me like franchise seems to have been effectively abandoned. Yeah, I mean, uh, they they came out with the one on Orange Box and then they just stopped. Mmm, mmm, Orange Box. Strange name. Anyway... So, I, I did manage to find a let's play of this game, and I have to say, I, I wasn't impressed. The protagonist, Gordon Freeman, doesn't seem to have any character at all I can identify, just completely blank. Hmm. And graphically, I don't know, it looks like it's from like the late 90s or something. I don't know, maybe somebody can find a copy on an emulator site. It doesn't seem worth the effort to me. Yeah, I mean, uh, probably can't find it anywhere on uh, any kind of digital storefront or anything like that. No, no. I mean, maybe like Epic Games or something. <laughs> I, I can't think of any prominent ones. 
In any case, we're going to be looking at a, a novel adaptation of Half-Life. Uh, though I would say it's less of an adaptation, more of like an interquel. It, it surprisingly expands the lore in very notable ways. It was released in 2006, but unfortunately I can't find any evidence of it having a particular impact. Nothing on like the New York Times bestsellers list. Uh, I suspect either the obscurity of the Source game dramatically hurt the sales, or that this uh, Valve was embarrassed by how much higher quality the adaptation was and just kind of buried it. Have you ever heard of this uh, adaptation? Uh, actually, I have not. Hmm. Didn't realize that it got a spinoff. Yes, it did. It did. It's um, one of those ones that seem to have gone under the radar of most people. There was an extremely amateurish uh, film adaptation of this novel, but I can't recommend it. It's just, it's just not cinema, you know? Hmm. Yeah, probably uh, just sort of a direct-to-video type thing. Yeah, yeah, like clearly just there for the money. I'll go into synopsis here now. So, we meet the protagonist of our novel, who is the brother of Gordon Freeman, who is named John. And immediately, John's a huge improvement on Gordon, because he actually has dialogue. Which, Gordon Freeman, they didn't even bother adding that in the original game. Yeah, real, real uh, slapdash, if you ask me. Mm, 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 mm. Like, I don't know if they ran out of time, or budget, or just can't be bothered. In any case, John's more of an everyman character as well. We meet him as he's working in an office, and I find that far more relatable to the average gamer than having your player character be, like, a physicist. It's just weird. Yeah. So John gets this frantic email from his brother informing him that extra-dimensional creatures have entered our world. This seems to be a reference to the first game. I've seen commentary where analysts say the story is set during the second Half-Life video game, but my own deep dive has satisfied me that this is earlier in the timeline. Uh, I know this might seem a bit um, esoteric here, but I think it's important we, we get our setting right. You know what I mean? Yeah, because, you know, if you, if you set it too far along, you know, who knows where you'll end up. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Things could just be absolute chaos, whereas this is extremely tight in terms of its structure. So, John's a man of action. He switches out of his ordinary clothing. Now, I suspect the author must be deeply involved with the one percenter motorcycle gang culture. There's a lot of recurring references to motorcycles here. I don't know if you noticed. Uh, no. Oh, of course you didn't see it. I'm, I'm yeah, sorry. I never <laughs> uh, never read the book, so. <laughs> well, there's a point where John does a backflip off of a building. I, I don't ride motorcycles, so I don't know if that's impressive, but the context seems to indicate it's like a really difficult feat to do that. There is then a scathing piece of social commentary. John's admiring the beauty of his surroundings while speeding along in his great American motorcycle when a police officer, typical corruption, uses like a speed trap to try and give John a ticket. And 
there's this lovely bit of metaphor here where it describes him as like a crab or like having a crab for a head. It's, it, I can't get quite across, but it's, I, I find it very affecting. And note the name of our protagonist here, John Freeman. John Freeman. Just putting that out there, it might have slipped by you. I, I am I am trying to uh, decipher this puzzle, but uh, coming up a little blank, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> so he responds to the government tyranny by shooting the officer in the head. You know, don't tread on me. And it's all rather reminiscent of Ken Kesey's One Flew Over a Cuckoo's Nest. There's, there's other subtle references to the Beat Generation, but I won't go into that because of time. So, John arrives in the town of Ravenholm, which has a warning sign, you shouldn't come here. And I think, uh, I think it must have been the inspiration for that iconic Walking Dead, don't open dead inside warning. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, you sure don't want a dead when there's open inside. Yes, indeed, indeed. And I think this once again shows us that, uh, Walking Dead lifted a lot of uh, ideas from this book, which is strange, I think. Uh, they probably thought it was uh, such obscure source material that they could get away with it. Indeed. I mean, if you're going to plagiarize anything, and I'm not accusing the Walking Dead writer of plagiarism, but I am, <laughs> you want to plagiarize something obscure like Half-Life. We have an interesting passage where John shows considerable empathy towards his enemies. Uh, they seem to be enemies from the video game, but the author gives considerably more detail. Basically, John commands them to leave, but it turns out that they in fact live at this location. They're like specters tied to the building by their sins in life. And John, instead of the standard video game violence, helps them find their peace. And I think it's sad that there just aren't more examples of understanding and non-violent solutions to problems in video games. Have you ever played a non-violent video game? No, I mean, most of the video games that exist are violent, and that's why they're often referred to in the media as the full title, uh, Violent Video Games. It's mm, 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 never mm. just video games. It's always violent video games. Of course, and that's very accurate. Uh, it's just video games just don't have that kind of depth to them. We get some horrifying descriptions of the town of Ravenholm. Particularly poignant is the emphasis on the lack of birdsong. Makes it things very tense. So John finally reaches his brother, who's fighting the final boss from the game. And I'm going to quote the wiki here, as I feel it gets across the sheer vileness of the creature. Physically, the Nihilanth resembles a gigantic, abnormally proportioned, brownish-grey fetus with a massive head atop a smaller body. The creature's minuscule legs appear to be either vestigial or the remains of amputation. Its head, so large that it must be kept upright with a small cord or string that extends from the base of the spine to the back of the head, it has three-fingered hands, multiple eyes, a third appendage protruding from the middle of its chest. Underneath its third arm, a surgical scar that goes down to the abdomen. Chilling, I, I think you'll agree. Yeah, uh, very graphic description there. 
Mm, mm, mm. Indeed. John uses his marksmanship skills to blind the abomination, and that allows Gordon to deliver the final blow. We get a little bit of comic relief as we see the warm, brotherly relationship between John and Gordon, but then the author starts building that tension again. You know, it's building up that climax, but then it never quite goes back down again. It's always just pushing it a little further. This unnamed presence arrives, so large it seems to reach the top of the sky. John sacrifices himself to save John, and he's graphically crushed to death. John swears vengeance, and that's where the novel ends. Mm, gotta have a little cliffhanger. Mm, indeed, it's. I think it's one of the most affecting cliffhangers uh, I've ever encountered. I know it's a little difficult here for you, Daniel, but from my description, what did you think of this Half-Life? Uh, sounds um, sounds pretty pretty interesting, uh, but not uh, not a lot of meat on the bones. Yeah, th- this is the problem. I think like the novel was obviously supposed to continue into like a really quite epic, lengthy series, but just unfortunately, I can't see any evidence it was ever continued. Uh, I, I think that's really sad. People just don't appreciate the excellence here. I will mention my favourite part, and there's a really haunting passage, which I didn't bring up earlier, and it's about the brutal beating of a dead horse. And I just found that to be so relatable. In any case, I, I hope this podcast will encourage a new generation to seek out this text, which I think has been unfairly marginalized it sounds like it's been uh, just about as buried as the the dead sea scrolls yes indeed indeed and should probably have just as much impact on society <laughs> now i'm gonna thank you all for i was gonna say thank you all for listening i just realized i never actually gave the name of the book it's called half-life full life consequences uh so <sighs> can't believe I forgot that. Uh, well, yeah, Half-Life Full Life Consequences. We'll just add that then in at the end there. Sorry about that. Uh, thanks for <laughs> indulging me with this, everyone. And I'll catch you next time. <laughs> <laughs>